Take a network break. Pass around the virtual donuts as we sift through this week's tech news for nuggets of information. Today we're talking about Microsoft getting into zero trust, Linux religious wars, Intel dropping the nook, a special Wireshock conversation, space networking, and more. We don't have any ads today. We do have a Tech Bytes. Uh, we're talking with uh, sponsor Cisco Thousand Eyes about how Thousand Eyes can now use Meraki routers and WebEx RoomOS devices to collect network and app performance data, as well as the Thousand Eyes endpoint agent being integrated into the Cisco Secure Client. That's at the end of this conversation. It's a good conversation too. There's some new ideas in there that I hadn't heard, but the idea of doing this stuff on Meraki rather than on the higher end equipment that Cisco's done is really interesting. So you can now do digital experience monitoring. You can create synthetic tests and you can use your Meraki network to be able to do uh, user monitoring. Uh, and also just even though we don't have an ad spot today, maybe if there's a vendor listening, maybe you want to put your ad on here. Don't hesitate to uh, take the opportunity to get in contact with us and uh, keep us uh, here producing this content for you to listen to. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, Intel is discontinuing its investment in the Nook PC line. Nooks are mini PCs that uh, found a niche with both home and business users. Intel says it's going to let the ecosystem partners, quote, continue Nook innovation and growth, end quote. Uh, Intel will no longer be a part of it. Color me dubious, Drew. Color me dubious. I think this is a bad move from Intel overall. The Nook is very popular with home users and prosumers, particularly the nerds who write code at uh-huh. home, and, but don't want to be running it in the cloud because it's not that important. And the NUC has been a very popular, especially with uh, people that I'm s- surrounded by, as a place to go and, you know, do some Docker containers and things like that. They're very reliable. They've been very easy to buy. And it means avoiding to have it to do deals with Dell or HP or some other vendor who have inevitably want to try and, you know, make it like buying a used car. You have to go through 15 hoops and five sales reps and all that sort of stuff. And it's been a really popular. So I think what we've gotten to the point now is that Intel wants to cut costs more than it wants revenue. And they don't really care about having happy customers anymore. They want to just focus on ASIC design and manufacturing. And uh, now that Intel doesn't make the memory modules and it doesn't make all of the chips that go onto a server motherboard anymore, although a lot of the chips are now just chiplets on the CPU die, but Intel doesn't make the rest of the modules, and so it probably makes less sense than it does before. So I'm kind of, I'm very disappointed. I know a lot of other people are very disappointed about this. Yeah, it did seem like there was uh, some sadness in the community about uh, Intel stepping away from Nook, although it sounds like Nook won't go away, but maybe people just prefer getting it from Intel as opposed to some other member of the ecosystem. I see them as being a huge marketing success for Intel, and they're widely used by people, right? EOLing the product will probably send a lot of them to AMD, who actually has better CPUs in terms of power and pricing. And it sort of disrupts what's left of Intel's brand loyalty, if that makes sense. The the NUC was kind of a, you know, it's one of these things where you look at a spreadsheet and you say, this, this product makes no sense financially, but they fail to understand how much of the goodwill it generates with the customer mm. and, and how it, these things can have a real marketing impact. And I think this is one of those cases. So I think... You can beat your chest all you like, but Intel is not the company it was. Uh, it doesn't make all the things that it did. It's been able not. It's been financially engineering itself for so long that it's actually cut the heart out of the company. And I think Pat Gelsing is going to have a tough time trying to keep Intel in business. It's 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 just as likely that Intel disappears completely, even with all the government handouts. Um, at this stage, it's really not sure that Intel can survive much longer. Like it, I think it'll be around. I, I think it'll be a decade as it stumbles into irrelevance and gets acquired by somebody. 
we'll see. I don't know if that, that's a bold prediction. I, I disagree with that one, but I can see the thinking inside <laughs> Intel that we sell chips. Uh, why, are, why are we competing with the OEMs who put the chips in boxes? Uh, we're bleeding revenue. We need to focus on our core markets. Uh, so mm. yeah, this was cute, but uh, we're moving on. Yeah, but they're back in the days when Intel made motherboards and have made mm-hmm. servers. This made sense. Mm-hmm. And sure, I did, that, but they're, yeah. they've also stepped out of building their own servers, uh, which happened earlier right. this year they as well. They sold that so, to yeah. MyTech, um, and MyTech now makes servers with some Intel branding still, but the NUC mustn't have fitted into what MyTech wanted to do, and they couldn't find a way for it to go. And I don't think it's all that significant, but like I said, I suspect it's they're going to burn a lot of goodwill here around this, and I think you'll see a lot more people <laughs> switching to AMD as a result. Whatever goodwill they had left. Very quietly, not huge numbers. Yeah, this point, it's really about the cloud providers and not what normal people want anymore, sure. so... Maybe that's just the way it goes. Moving on, Microsoft is entering the secure services edge, aka the cloud-delivered security market, with new features in its Entra portfolio. Uh, Last year, Microsoft announced Entra as a new product family focused on identity and access management. It's now extending Entra with new features, including a secure web gateway and a client-based VPN with zero trust capabilities. Yeah, although Entra sounds like something that a medical, like a medical instrument that gets inserted in places where it probably shouldn't, or maybe a <laughs> That's drug. That's funny. I was exactly, I was thinking the same. It sounds like, you know, you, yeah. you have problems with your bladder and this is a drug that the pharmacies will sell you. <laughs> so the answer is, of course, is that Microsoft has entered the SSE market. So that is that idea that the cloud hosted capability where we've seen companies like Zscaler and Cloudflare get really big. And then, of course, Palo Alto and Fortinet have built entire you know new product categories around this and somebody must have looked around at microsoft and realized that they have oh look we've got most of the bits and pieces to implement this we've got mm-hmm. active mm-hmm. directory which has now been renamed microsoft entra directory or something entra id entra id that's right so active directory is dead is, is actually the byline here by the way which is actually a big deal um because in the days when uh, active directory was named uh bill gates was in charge and the uh-huh. idea was that Active was part of its proactive, you know, ActiveX uh-huh. and all that sort of stuff, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the directory was because it was directly competing with Novell's directory services. Uh-huh. Back in the idea was that you would have a directory of services that your computer offered, fax machines, phones, printers, and so forth, and then it will be registered in the directory. And that was all based around an X400, X500 model. Microsoft took X500, made it proprietary, and now we have Microsoft Entra or whatever it's called, ID. So it's just an identity tool. Of course, that is just like any other identity tool. It's got its disadvantages and its advantages. It's not as competent as some of the others. They claim it's going to protect and verify every identity. Okay, probably sort of it will. Uh, Provides only the access necessary. Well, that's kind of the point. Uh, Discover and right-size permissions, manage access like so, and ensure least privilege. Well, that's the bare minimum. And simplify the user experience. I almost guarantee you that won't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. So, you know, all things I think that's a safe bet. <laughs> safe bet. It'll be buried inside of a billion menus inside of the Azure Cloud stuff. Um, so, I, I mean, a few things here that, that sort of struck me, and i just roll out some thoughts here. Uh, if you thought remote work wasn't happening, here's proof that it's big enough for Microsoft to dive bomb the pool. And when I say dive bomb the pool, I mean literally Microsoft's diving in. I think the market for this is finite. Sometimes when companies like Microsoft move in here, it drives an expansion. You know, it validates the market. Mm -hmm. Like when Apple came in and said, oh, we're going to create a password tool and all the other password tools went, oh, no, we're being Sherlocked. And of course they weren't. It just made the market bigger and validated the whole thing. I think that's not happening here. Microsoft is going to be the 
first port of call for a lot of companies when it comes to doing SSE and SD-WAN type technologies. They've got a bunch of partners already. Um, but I think they're going to be chasing after money that was now going to Palo Alto, Zscaler, Cloudflare, and so forth. Microsoft gets to be pitching itself as a cybersecurity company, which is going to be good for the share price, even more than yeah. it is. Um, but I feel predictable. I feel very confident, Drew, very confident. I'm going to go with this prediction and say it will be hugely successful while also being a very weak product, probably unsafe, lacking most of the features that any sane enterprise company from would want, but it's Microsoft. It'll be in the license. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, I think this is, uh, frankly, very smart uh, for Microsoft to get into this space. Uh, every vendor that we talk to who's touting a zero trust product has to already integrate with Active Directory as part of the implementation because you need that access control layer. And that's what most companies already have Active Directory in place. So I'm sure Microsoft is seeing this and saying, geez, we, we've got sort of a, a, a cornerstone here. Why not build around it? So they're doing that. They've rolled out a client-based VPN uh, to provide that access layer. Uh, they just launched the secure web gateway so they can have an enforcement point. So yeah, it makes uh, great sense. I'm curious if they're going to eventually expand into SASE, um, but that means, you know, doing SD-WAN, getting firewalling IPS and so on. And I'm sure they'd say they have some of those, but I think they're probably not as full featured as the security companies doing this, but totally makes sense for Microsoft to get in yeah, here. I'm sort of bullish on them doing it yeah. uh, because they have most of the components in place. They do. And uh, more I, importantly, they're the yeah. first stop for enterprises, right? When you if you if you're already on Office 365 and uh, Azure Cloud and so on, this is probably just a checkbox on the licensing. Yeah, let's get this as well. Yeah, I think so, and that'll be uh, one of the things I noted is that share prices in Palo Alto, Fortinet, Cloudflare, Zscaler, and Cisco all and other vendors, by the way, all mm -hmm. fell by varying amounts, like it was anything up to six percent, basically mm -hmm. on the back of this announcement. So if, if tremors, you were having a tremors, yeah. Well, a lot of these shares are highly priced, predicting future growth around this market. Mm -hmm. And if you were predicting future growth, some of that growth just went away, and so the shares have been repriced down. Uh, it's causing some of them some real pain. So Yeah. Uh, and I think in a sign of how serious this is, we were sort of joking about it, but to obliterate the Active Directory brand, which has stood for decades and people know what it is and why it's there... Uh, I think to me is a sign how serious that Microsoft corporate is about this uh, changing Active Directory to my Entra ID. The whole identity market and identity access control and identity access management and putting threat detection on top of, you know, if you're logging in and then suddenly you're logging in from Brazil, but you've always logged in from, you know, a particular state in, in Australia, then, you know, that's the new thing. That's the new zero trust, micro segmentation, restricted access controls. And that's what you need. That's what you what you have. And so the tie, the days of Active Directory just being like a, a, a password repository for usernames and where your group policies recited, that's that's passing and, and probably yeah. overdue, to be honest. And just, I know it's not important, but for Microsoft, like, why not Active Directory Advanced or why not Microsoft Entry ID? This Entra thing is... It sticks in my craw for some reason. I don't know, but you should have taken a little more time to think about that. It does feel like an uncomfortable <laughs> medical thing, I must say. You know. <laughs> Sticking with Microsoft, uh, the company reported that its Exchange Online and Outlook Web Access services were compromised and that nation-state attackers, they're, they're saying China, accessed emails of high-level officials in the U.S. government agencies, including the state and commerce departments, which is not a great story to have running alongside your new Zero Trust <laughs> access well, announcement, well, but there it is. This would be, again... <laughs> I don't right. really think, that, you know, uh, so um, there's probably some sort of difference between Microsoft Exchange Online versus 
Azure email gateway or whatever. It's just very right. really difficult to track all of the Azure products. And yeah. if you're running Exchange in 2023, it's probably time to stop. Um, and I mean to be, you know, and, and make the change. Make a migration to something that's a bit more modern and doesn't have the problem. It's clear that Microsoft doesn't care and it's, it's your fault. As far as I'm concerned, if you got breached, uh, there might be a lesson in there for you, and that is uh, you've got to spend more money on upgrading and staying current, and sucks to be you. I think Exchange Online and Outlook Web Access are probably the versions prior to Office 365, so that probably plays a role here, yes. Yeah, but that's not an excuse Microsoft is offering this as a service. It should be secure. It, it's hosted, exactly. Yep. If you want to tell me that Microsoft SSE is also secure, I'll just point you to this article from going forward. Exactly. Mm. Uh, moving on, uh, Broadcom has cleared a significant hurdle in its effort to acquire VMware. The European Union has approved the acquisition, although the approval comes with a few conditions. Uh, the primary sticking point for the EU was that Broadcom might freeze Marvel out of the fiber channel host bust adapter market by, quote, restricting or degrading the interoperability between VMware's server virtualization software and Marvel's hardware. Uh, Broadcom has promised to guarantee access to its APIs, its source code, and to offer technical support for third-party FCHPAs. Uh, so the EU says, okay, that's fine. We're going to monitor this compliance with this promise for 10 years. And in the meantime, we'll let you go forward with the acquisition. This is all a bit weird. You know, people like uh, me who look forward are always a bit shocked when you find out that fiber channels are thriving and highly profitable um, transfer of wealth from enterprise companies to just a couple of players. Broadcom makes the, the chips, but also the NICs and then works extensively with all of the storage companies. But Marvell has a chip. Uh, and then it's up to companies like HPE to embed that um, mm -hmm. into an into an adapter, which they can then sell. So there's a bit more, you know, there's a different way to do it. And the, for whatever reason, the European Commission decided that it was fiber channel HPAs, which was where the competitive clash would occur. But it's right. not the only point, you know. So who knows what's sort of gone on behind the scenes here. There, you know, you would have to go into the details of the commission processes. But I don't think Broadcom will be overly upset about this, they get VMware, which one of the biggest technology acquisitions ever to have happened. I think it's even bigger than Dell's acquisition of EMC back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think losing the FBA, although the F, uh, the the fiber channel HBAs is a very profitable, reputed to be putting something like $3 billion to $4 billion worth of profit to the bottom line every single year. I think that, you know, whether Broadcom brings a DPU to market, I think they will, but only after the VMware acquisition has been done, because this has obviously been a sticking point with the EU and possibly with the US FTC. So now another condition that we got was Broadcom undertook to not bundle VMware's virtualization software with any of its own software. So mm -hmm. it has a software division, as we know, we've talked about this before, and they must not bundle that to, so that the market can still be competitive so, you know, the security part of, of uh, uh, Broadcom must not be bundled with VMware. I mean, VMware's already got all of the security parts anyway, so it's a bit of a weird one. It doesn't instantly look to me as a technologist like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's a bit like you wonder what process has got to be the case. Yeah. Uh, so the EU is a big hurdle for this acquisition, but uh, Broadcom still has to get past the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and the U.K. Competition Agency. We'll see if uh, the EU moving has any effect uh, on these other two regulatory bodies. Analysts think so, or the stock market thinks so, because the uh, split on the VMware price, that is, VMware's price is less than Broadcom's buy price today, because mm -hmm. it was a very inflated price, uh, but that split narrowed as people think it's much more likely for the deal to get together. Okay. The hive mind has said this is going through. Uh, wisdom in the masses, perhaps. Yes, perhaps. And you also had some thoughts about <laughs> talking about Fiber Channel in 2023? 
But it does hurt to talk about Fibre Channel in 2023, so I figure we can rip the Band-Aid off here. So we're already doing it, okay. Yeah, Marvel popped out some marketing spaff about their 32 gig Fibre Channel adapters being used by HPE Electra Storage. I don't know if there's going to be a third wave of Fibre Channel, but there's been a really strong rejection of RDMA over Ethernet by the storage market. And we don't really talk about it much here because it's not a big deal. And they continue to deploy Fibre Channel in their storage networks. And Mm -hmm. the current thrust is around NVMe over Fibre Channel rather than using NVMe over RDMA. I can't really blame them. Poor performance of Ethernet protocols, the poor quality deployment of Ethernet fabrics in enterprise data centers. Ethernet networks have multiple applications and you can't set them up so that you can have guarantees around the storage flows when you've got hundreds of other applications shunting around the data center. Storage traffic can be very heavy, yeah. very saturated. And so at this point, I think um, there's just so little experience around using RDMA in the enterprise that it's just easier to buy Fiber Channel and pay the penalty. The financial penalties around Fiber Channel are astonishing because they use the same Ethernet adapters, the same Ethernet FIs. They just encode Fiber Channel framing over the top of it instead of an Ethernet framing, and away you go. So just thought I pointed out that Fiber Channel is making pots of cash for Marvell and Broadcom. That's because I think, you know, in storage, if the bits don't hit a disk, then storage doesn't happen. And so Fiber Channel promises guaranteed bandwidth and no loss of frames. And so if those bits <laughs> need to hit a disk, that's what you want. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing to obviously do is just build a storage network out of Ethernet. So if you're going to build a storage in a separate storage network out of Fiber Channel, build it out of Ethernet and build it RDMA. Take advantage of the lower cost, easier to operate infrastructure, but just have two networks, one for data, one for storage, right? One for your normal IP data and another one for, for high performance storage. But no, apparently that's been tried and I'm told by storage people that it just doesn't work. So there you go. Uh, switching out of Linux, uh, Oracle and SUSE have both waded into the Red Hat Enterprise Linux kerfuffle. Uh, first, Oracle released, frankly, a rather smug post about its commitments to keep uh, Oracle Linux as closely aligned with Red Hat Enterprise Linux as possible, while also keeping it fully open source. It also says it welcomes downstream distros of Oracle Linux, both commercial and community, and offered to poach any Red Hat developers who were frustrated by changes at Red Hat. Uh, and then SUSE officially announced it developing a hard fork of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and will, quote, develop and maintain a Rahel compatible distribution available to all without restrictions. It's also pledged to invest $10 million into this effort over the next few years. All right. So we talked about it a couple of weeks ago uh, with IBM Hat closing down the availability of RHEL to licensed and paying customers only. So, yes, you can get a free license to it, but you have to have a registered developer account on the IBM site. So you have to be a blessed party. And that also means that if you decide to do anything that's outside of the license, IBM can come after you, right? Because once you're in the developer, various conditions apply to you. So this is how they stop you from just going to their site, downloading RHEL, and then forking it and claiming it's your own distro. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oracle's response is pretty good. I must say that the IBM Red Hat original post is absolutely tone deaf. It is hostile to the open source community. <laughs> I've been reading it and rereading it. They could have, there was very little that they could have done to actually make that more aggressive and <laughs> stupidly, like it's just, if this person is actually a senior executive, they they really need to rethink what this whether this person should be in charge because it is provocative. Uh. And basically what they're saying is, you know, the idea that Red Hat can take a bunch of free software that other people put together, package it up, and then sell it on and give support to it, but then say, we need to make all of the money out of this, is really offensive to all the people who are upstream, right? And so anyway, so because SUSE has announced that it will release a RHEL-compatible distribution, it gives companies an alternative. It will fork the RHEL code and package a compatible distribution. $10 million doesn't sound like a lot of money, 
but maybe the team to actually just do the technology around the packaging and the distribution isn't that large. And all of the upstream code is free and open. So really maybe a team of 20 to 50 people, would that do it, do you think? Potentially, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's oh. what they're betting on. Yeah. Uh, same for Oracle as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, Suse, like Oracle, is, has credible claims here. They are already have distribution experience with their SLEs, the Suse Linux edition, and yep. also OpenSUSE. So they still have the open slash closed model. You can go and get OpenSUSE. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be interesting to see. The question here is will enterprises multiply their Linux OS to Ubuntu? Or will they move to a rail compatible distro and just pay the IPM tax and enjoy the experience of doing as little work as possible while spending someone else's money? I think so. Uh, <laughs> my guess is always on spending someone else's money and doing less work. Yeah. Like you care. Like everybody says, people say price matters, but effectively no one ever buys the cheap option in enterprise IT. Look at Oracle, Barely. Cisco and IBM run on 65 to 80% gross margins on their product, have recorded consistent revenue growth over the last three years. No one really cares about price except just to whine about it, you know, because it's a fun thing to do. Everybody's expecting it's like buying a new car. You have to whine about how expensive it is. But there's no professionalism around it, in my opinion. Uh, I have to say, Oracle, to me, that that blog post uh, felt like it was enjoying the unaccustomed view from the moral high ground. It, it really liked that. <laughs> it really did come off like, <laughs> how did we get into this situation where we That's can get right. this? Like, We're the good guys? What? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would imagine that people turning to Oracle will be in the limited number because Oracle's reputation is not <laughs> right. solid. No. It's hard to imagine... <laughs> You know, I mean, they're doing good things and, and that's okay, but Oracle has a reputation for being fairly hostile to its customers over the life cycle. So we'll see. Very sharp-edged. If Suse can put it together, then... They've got the credibility to, to, to make it happen, potentially. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, SonicWall and Fortinet have both announced vulnerabilities that need patches or updates. Uh, SonicWall says a suite of 15 vulnerabilities, including four that are rated critical, are affecting its global firewall management system. They urge customers to update the software immediately. Uh, and for Fortinet, there's a stack-based buffer overflow vulnerability in certain versions of its 40OS for proxies and firewalls that are running SSL-based deep packet inspection. Uh, there's a workaround, or you can upgrade to specific versions of the OS. We have details and links in the show notes if you uh, need to go patch those. Yeah, I have two things here. One is uh, SonicWall uh, has such a bad reputation for this sort of stuff. I'd be amazed. I, I really wouldn't want to be running SonicWall in my network because I would just be forever paranoid that something's gone wrong because they don't seem to have done a very good job in keeping their products actually secure. They may have made a firewall, but it doesn't mean it's secure. See my earlier comments about Microsoft. Um, Fortinet's had a bad run lately. A lot of their stuff has been discovered as being having problems. They've tried to do their best to get things out as quickly as possible. There's quite a few that are actually being exploited in the wild. So if you haven't checked what your patching looks like lately, then do that now. Greg, you had a conversation uh, with Hansang Bay about uh, the Wireshark Foundation. Uh, so coincidentally, coming up on the 25th birthday of Wireshark since the project started, and it's been through a number of changes over time. Notably, it wiped out all commercial competitors. If you remember back 25 years ago, you might remember that Wireshark ultimately became the default choice for on-box packet capture and analysis and uh -huh. wiping out a whole marketplace. Now, most recently, Wireshark transitioned to the Wireshark Foundation, so to establish itself a future decades of development and need some financial support. I spoke with Hansung Bay, who is on the foundation board for Wireshark, about why Wireshark needs money now. Here's a conversation. 
So I'm joined by Hansung Bae, who's a member of the Wireshark Foundation. And the question I wanted to ask you, Hansung, is what changed? In the years gone by, Wireshark just seemed to have been mysteriously available to everybody. And it never seemed to need money it, as a foundation. It always seemed to be out there producing this amazing code that anybody could download. And now we go to the Wireshark page and it's saying, please donate money. What, what's, the, what's happening now? What's changed? Yeah, so many years ago, Riverbed was kind of the corporate sponsor. Think mm. of it as kind of a rich uncle that didn't care about you, mm. right? Meaning they completely let Gerald do his thing, and there was no oversight. There was no, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? The name Wireshark was big enough in the troubleshooting community, monitoring community, that just having Wireshark as a name was good enough. Mm. And obviously, we know that Riverbed has transformed itself a few times. It became kind of not a distraction, but no one knew what to do with this uh, valuable name, Wireshark. And what we, as the Wireshark Foundation, decided was, hey, we should branch out and do our own thing. With that comes, hey, you better have money to run a daily business of the infrastructure of servicing millions of downloads per year Mm -hmm. is uh, extraordinarily high. That's ultimately the reason why we ask for donations saying, hey... Uh, we need some help running the infrastructure here because all of you, thank you, download Wireshark. What you're suggesting there is as much as it costs for people to write the app together, and there are a number of full-time developers and core committers who are paid for by the Wireshark Foundation. Gerald, of course, is one of them. You've also got the Wireshark Conference, which I assume is a source of profit for the foundation, but still it doesn't really cover the cost of just the sheer volume of downloads. Actually, and we'll publish this, Gerald has talked about this during SharkFest, uh, I remember there was one month, I think there was 6 million downloads. Mm. And with that comes the bandwidth cost, egress cost. Mm. It's cloud hosted. So everybody remembers, you know, it's like Hotel California. You can go in for free, but every bit that comes out costs money. We're always looking for a better hosting platform as well. So we upgraded that because it was kind of a slower download. And uh, just infrastructure alone uh, is expensive. Is the product changing? Like, is the organization under threat? Is the foundation doing okay? Or is this more of a proactive, well-managed process? So Gerald learned his lesson when his ethereal name Mm. could not come with him when he left. So with the name change, ethereal to Wireshark gave Gerald, poor Gerald, Agena. But it was like a nothing burger. No one cared. All the developers were like, yeah, sure, change the name, let's go. And everybody came. So this time, though, it took us about two years to do this. So this was in motion almost two and a half years ago, and we wanted to make sure there was no disruption by the open source community, mm-hmm. all the core developers that contribute their valuable time for free. We wanted to make sure the charter was exactly as what everybody thought. What are the roles and responsibility of the board? Because the minute you put the board there, yeah. it sounds like, oh, these guys are in calling the shots, right? And we want to make sure and said, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a legal requirement in the US. Even mm-hmm. though you're a nonprofit, you have to have officers uh, you have to have meetings. So it was more a fiduciary kind of responsibility that tax IRS organization imposes on you. <laughs> There's so, so many nonprofits actually, that abuse it that you actually have to have these controls and responsibilities. That's the the kind of the genesis of it. So we mm. created a technical board as well mm-hmm. to make sure that none of the core developers felt like, well, wait a minute, are you the boss of me now? Mm-hmm. What you say goes. Uh, and so we it took us about two years to hash that out to make mm-hmm. sure that no, no, no we're fine as is we just 
it's legal paperwork. But mainly what you're looking for is donations to help support the cost. Now, there's a company called Sysdig who's involved, mm -hmm. and I see one of the co-founders of the Wireshark project is actually part of Sysdig. So it sounds like there's a relationship there to a two-way street. But really what I think I'm seeing is that Wireshark wants to stand on its own two feet. It doesn't want to have to be dependent on a, a rich corporate uncle to keep them going. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Mm. That's all it is. Uh, and Loris, uh, bless his heart, um, mm. gave Gerald, you know, he needs a place to go to code as well. Yep. Uh, and he requires uh, infrastructure for what he does. And obviously, Loris, everybody knows Loris in the Wireshark community. He invented WinPCAP uh, and kind of blew up Wireshark when it was only available for Linux at the time. And once WinPCAP was written, every window user could download it. And that's when it really took off. If people were to donate, you're asking people maybe to just make a $5 donation or a few dollars donation, but I recurring. think- Recurring. Recurring, preferably, obviously, <laughs> if you can that's afford right. it. But maybe the thing here is that there are people listening and maybe their corporate organizations could set up some sort of donation because we know for so many networking professionals, there's not too many open source projects you can donate to. And maybe mm -hmm. Wireshark is the one where you could use your corporate credit card to set up a maybe a regular donation of 10 or $20 a month. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I believe in this because I kickstarted many things. I kickstarted Rift through crowdsourcing. These 10, you know, 50, 60 million dollar projects kicked off because people had interest. And with 6 million people downloading per month, say 1% starts to donate, it starts to add up. So I believe this is doable and I want to prove it. Hmm. Uh, Gerald was a little bit hesitant because we, you know, we wanted to go for the corporate sponsor at Sharkfest. We have one or two events a year. Uh, and it's almost a net neutral because we also have scholarships for people who can't yeah. afford to come to Shark Conferences so. are really tough because you have to spend so much money up front booking venues. Yeah, and, that's exactly right. Greg. And you've got to find speakers. And, and I mean, I know that's the speakers right. come mostly for free, but it's just a huge investment. So I think yeah. the main thing we want to focus on here is, look, if you're using Wireshark and it's doing something from your organization, maybe you can use your corporate credit card to kick some money into that fund. And it doesn't have to yes. be a whole lot. If we could get a few hundred people putting 10 or 20 bucks a month on a corporate credit card to kick a donation towards Wireshark, it could make a huge difference to something that, you know, one of the very few open source projects to in networking that really makes a difference, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody uses it. Uh, everybody knows how to use it. It's one of those tools that everybody gravitates towards. Uh, and so let's support it. So uh, it would be really great if you could uh, maybe find, if you've got the opportunity to use your corporate credit card to make a donation, head on over to wiresharkfoundation.org slash donate and uh, see if you can help them out. Yep, that's wiresharkfoundation.org slash donate. Let's wrap up with some space networking. A satellite broadband provider Viasat is reporting problems with a recently launched satellite saying that an unexpected event during reflector deployment, quote, materially impacted performance of the satellite. Uh, so I guess they're having issues in space. Yeah, now Viasat, is one of the previous generation of satellite companies. They send large, heavy satellites to orbit and they sit up there for 20 or 30 years doing their satellite-y things. This newest satellite called Viasat 3, very imaginative naming by there, by the way, was launched on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. And the report noticed that this is actually something like a $400 million satellite. So right. the, the point here is that if you're going to send one very big, large satellite to orbit, and it doesn't work. You've lost your entire project, right? Right. Uh, and so the the ultimate result here was that the company's share value has dropped almost 35% since it announced the news. And I suspect that once we know for sure that the satellite has actually failed, uh, they might see a bigger drop. But it's just interesting to compare this, you know, one big fat monolith sending it to orbit, covering the North American broadband market. So they're trying to get into doing what SpaceX is doing in terms of delivering bandwidth. 
mm-hmm. and you send one big satellite and it doesn't work, you're in a, a whole world of pain at this point. Right, compared to the SpaceX model or uh, which or the uh, Starlink model, which is lots of little satellites uh, that are Yeah, it's replaced. counterintuitive. You know, we've got Rivada, we've got OneWare, we've got a Blue Origin setting up theirs, and you've got space, Starlink, of course. But, you know, you lose a satellite, you lose a launch or two of satellites, you've lost 30 microsatellites, but it's only another week until the next lot go up. Right. So it's not world ending. It's like the, there was a launch two or three weeks ago. They took up 30-odd uh, Starlink 2s, like the the version 2 of that satellite, and they lost 10 of them on deployment, and most of the rest of them have already deorbited and burned up in the atmosphere. Did anybody notice? No, not really, except for the people who care about such things. But you shoot up one satellite that you only send up once every 10 years like this, and you've got a different problem. So I wonder how much longer this, you know, one-and-done type space network. This model can work. Yeah, we'll keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, you know, driving 50 miles. So that remote colo is a pain, but <laughs> compared <laughs> that to space, it's a whole different yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, call out to the geosynchronous orbit. So <laughs> to hit the hit the reflector with an antenna, you know, with the hit right. the radar reflector with an antenna. See if it'll unlock, yeah. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our conversation with Cisco Thousand Eyes on new network and application performance monitoring vantage points. That's coming right up. In today's Tech Byte, we're sponsored by Cisco Thousand Eyes, and they're sharing new product capabilities, including Thousand Eyes on Meraki MX and WebEx RoomOS devices, how we're getting faster insights into the root cause of the problems that your users are calling to complain about. Not that we ever have problems, but if we did, hypothetically, then that's what we'd be seeing. Now, our speaker today is Alex Cruz-Farmer, who's appeared on the Packet Pushers many times before. Welcome back, Alex. Give us an overview of these new capabilities that Thousand Eyes announced during Cisco Live this year, just a few weeks ago, really. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I mean, we've we've had a phenomenal payload and we, and we got some really, really great coverage at Cisco Live. But most importantly, you know, we've been really spending some time on how we can expand the number of uh, vantage points that we have. Hmm. So to do that, we need to be in more devices. We need to be in everything. We need to be everywhere. And what we did was we we were looking at the Cisco suite of products and looking at where can we integrate? Where can we really add value? Mm. One of the areas where we know we can absolutely add value is around the, the Meraki platform. So we announced the, our Meraki MX integration. So that allows us to deploy our Thousand Eyes Enterprise agent within a Meraki MX, giving that opportunity for our customers okay. who are using Meraki to actually get visibility directly from their platform. Now, that's a change because up until now, the Thousand Eyes agent used to be a container inside of a device. So you had to have... Uh, an operating system, a, a network operating system that supported containers or a server or whatever, and you could then install the agent, add it to the Thousand Eyes platform, and you could start collecting telemetry and visibility data. But now what you're saying is instead of keeping it isolated in a container, this is actually a thread in the Meraki operating system. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Meraki MX has the ability to run separate modules, similarly to something like uh, Snort or any of the antivirus piece um, that they have or hmm. a deep packet inspection. The Thousand Eyes Enterprise Agent can run um, as one of those modules within the Meraki MX. Right, which is a change, right? Instead of it being an alien, it's actually yeah. integrated into the core operating system. Is it similar with the WebEx Room OS devices? Yeah. One of the other areas of pain points with customers that we speak to is that when you're running a conference room system, uh, yeah. they're generally black boxes. You, you don't really have a good way of getting access to them. Mm-hmm. We went and saw a customer recently who said, you know, we've got 300 meeting rooms and when we do a software update, we'll just, you know, check a couple of the meeting rooms just to make sure everything's okay. It's yeah. impossible to check all of them. Mm-hmm. So for us, what we did was we looked at, well, actually, what can we do to help? And actually providing the endpoint agent within RoomOS became this interesting uh, interesting solution that, that we worked with. So we collaborated with the RoomOS team and we've now embedded the Thousand Eyes endpoint agent within the RoomOS firmware. So it means that 
you know, the second you, you join a meeting, um, mm -hmm. a WebEx meeting, or maybe even a Microsoft Teams and Zoom meeting in future, you will be able to then spin up a scheduled test as well as automated session tests to monitor that actual meeting and understand the network performance. So it really helps those, uh, those IT admins really understand what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about what you're monitoring when you're running uh, in a WebEx uh, on the Room OS? When, when we're spinning up a, an automated session test, which is one of the, the core features of, an, of our endpoint agents, when we spin up an AST, what happens is we're looking at when a RoomOS device or a Mac or a Windows device is, is running a WebEx meeting. We're then looking at the connections that that WebEx app is creating. And then what we're doing is we're dynamically creating synthetic tests to the nodes that the application is connecting to. Mm -hmm. So when, you, when people say, hey, I'm monitoring you know, WebEx or Teams or Zoom or whatever it may be, we are actually monitoring the IP addresses and the network connectivity to those IP addresses and um, that the application is speaking to. So if there is a problem on that end-to-end -end path, we can tell you exactly where that problem is and highlight exactly where, where that persistent issue may, may exist, whether it's on the Wi-Fi locally or whether it's the last mile or, or whether it's um, somewhere on a backbone carrier network somewhere. And we can give you that, that path visualization and, and identify exactly where that problem exists. But it sounds like you're also monitoring the, the edge device itself. So you're actually saying, is the device up? Is it communicating? And then I can also check that out of band. So you can reach into the agent on a Saturday afternoon and say, is this reachable and is it booted and is it et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So what you can do is we can give you CPU and memory statistics. Hmm. We've got further metrics coming coming down the, down the pipe as well that we'll be getting from the devices. Um, and then most importantly, let's say you want to do a spot check from you know an office that you may not have um, any monitoring from. You could use a RoomOS device to do an instant test to Salesforce or some other SaaS-based application, and you can use those as a monitoring node as well. So it's a, it's a real superpower within a, within a company's um, branch office, or maybe it could be just a, a small offsite, or it could be someone's home. So this week uh, on June 27th, which is just a couple of days ago, Cisco announced its intent to acquire a company called Sam Knows, which is a broadband monitoring system. It's got agents where it actually monitors sort of, I, as I understand it, the retail or consumer broadband network. How's that going to be folded into the Thousand Eyes portfolio? That's a, that's a great question. And you know what, we're super excited about uh, the Sam Knows opportunity. Really, the, the story around Sam Knows is about visibility of that last mile. And Thousand Eyes has done a phenomenal job in being able to build that internet visibility. We've got the endpoint agents um, in, you know, on, on hybrid worker devices. But, you know, actually, there's an opportunity for us to expand that visibility and expand that vantage point and, mm. and understand the health of these networks. And that's what Sam Knows brings to us at Thousand Eyes. It gives us that ability to, to that end-to-end -end picture. It gives us that complete vision um, of, of that end-to-end -end network performance. And ultimately, we'll help that diagnostic track, um, but also we'll improve that engagement that consumers you know, want to have with their service providers. They want to understand the health. They want to understand the performance. And that's something that, that Sam knows can, can help consumers get. So more data points is just more data points, right? The more data you've got, the better, theoretically. I guess this would also be headed in towards the artificial intelligence, you know, the AI, where we can know more about what's happening as there's advances in the computer science behind the scenes too. Absolutely. I mean, for us, it's not just about the data. It's also about the, the user experience and, and making sure that we can provide that good, mm -hmm. solid digital experience to all of the end users, not just the users that have maybe got a, a thousand eyes endpoint agent on it. Mm -hmm. um, by being on a, on a CPE or being on a, on, a, on a router in someone's home or maybe in a small office, mm -hmm. um, it can give us that ability to diagnose and, and understand the health there um, and provide that information back to a help desk or a 
provide that back to end users as well. Okay. So it's as much the data as it is the identifying root causes or modeling service impacts. Just It's not enough Absolutely. to just say up, down. We're going back to this discussion of gray outages. Maybe Absolutely. the service is slowing down and therefore gaming's not working, but, you know, TikTok's fine or something like that. Exactly that. And, and you know, we, we've seen successes that, that Sam knows have, have had where they've been able to identify problems within service provider infrastructure or they've been identifying um, SaaS outages and, and that kind of thing from um, from from their vantage points. Mm. Um, so it's just a, a natural progression of where Thousand Eyes can, can sort of further extend its reach. Do you see this as, as being targeted toward ISPs uh, who want to monitor performance of their customers or more like uh, I'm an enterprise, I've got a lot of remote or home workers and I want to get additional visibility to their performance? Today's Sam knows is, is very much focused on service provider um, and we're going to continue that track. Mm-hmm. I think service providers for us have always been a, a great partner and obviously Cisco is, is, is very heavy in, the, in that service provider environment. So it's a very, very natural progression for us. Another topic that came out during Cisco Live was the Thousand Eyes modules for the Cisco Secure Client. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a sort of a VPN client that people install into their Edge device, phones, laptops, and so forth. And now you're actually getting inside of that as well to add to the data collection and the visibility. Yeah, what can I say? I mean, we've been doing a great job of, of Thousand Eyes getting into as many as many of the things as we can within Cisco in a very short period of time. Mm. Uh, I think we've 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 done a we've done a really good job to partner across the business, and the Cisco Secure Client is what is one of those other partnerships. Now, we all are familiar with Cisco AnyConnect. It's been around for for decades. Mm. Cisco has spent a, has spent and invested um, a good amount of of resource into into rebuilding that client into the Cisco Secure Client, making it a lot more modular or making it a lot more flexible. And we were very lucky to be invited to, to join that sort of new next generation of, of the Cisco Secure Client. Mm. So Thousand Eyes is now going to be a module within the Secure Client, which is going to streamline installation. Um, it's going to help with things like installation friction and agent fatigue, which are you know two of the things that I know a lot of our customers really care about. Um, and most importantly, it gives us that opportunity to expand our you know deeper integrations on the security side with, with uh, Cisco. So this means you'll have that agent of that capability. If I'm if I've licensed Cisco Secure Client, I can also get essentially digital experience monitoring capabilities with this this Thousand Eyes module. If I turn that on, if I license it, absolutely, yeah. And I think that digital experience monitoring combined with you know with security, really, it doesn't sound like it should go hand in hand, but it really does. If we consider we've got so many people working from home, so many challenges that they run into, IT teams are blind. And I, I remember when we spoke originally a long time, you know, back in the early days of the pandemic, we talked yeah. about those unsung heroes in the IT team. And, you yeah. know, they are still unsung heroes. They they are still driving um, amazing, amazing work in trying to help hybrid work, um, you know, operate and and work efficiently for our, for our end users. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense to integrate a security client and a performance monitoring client because those are two things that are absolutely essential when you've got a remote workforce. Uh, you want to make sure that they are protected, but also, uh, you know, when they're calling into the help desk, they can that that help desk worker has as much information about what's happening on the device itself, on maybe the local ISP connection, on on what cloud apps they're connecting to, et cetera. And by having an agent, one agent to do all of that, I think the idea is you get a more streamlined, you know, uh, experience for the folks supporting the, the employees. Absolutely. I think also, you know, customers expect Cisco to be able to provide a complete solution. And the idea of putting an SD-WAN appliance on, you know, what is fundamentally a home network is not always practical. It's much more practical to say, here's a secure, a new secure client. And if that AnyConnect client has been rewritten from the ground up, that would be a very good thing for most people because that's a very long, you know, 
it's a mature architecture that was in need of a refresh and I think people would be excited but it, it's not only about the new client it's also about all the other technologies that are in there because the secure client has support for Cisco's umbrella which is the CASB stuff it's got uh, yep. the Cisco secure access which is the authentication with Duo and now you know the, it's got firewalling and a bunch of other things in there and now Cisco Thousand Eyes has added to that that's something not too many companies can do so I really see this as part of rounding out the, the feature set that people actually want from remote access. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have phenomenal visibility across all of the different areas. And, and like you said, having SUN into someone's home is not going to be something possible. So having visibility through something like an endpoint agent where a user can be on a VPN and they can mm. maybe even be using split tunnel um, because we often see that, you know, having something like WebEx or Microsoft Teams through a VPN is is just not a good thing to do. The performance right. is just not not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to exclude that and being able to, you know, be able to identify whether there's things wrong um, directly from the end user's point of view is is critical. And that's something that the endpoint agent uh, agent brings. So combining that with the security and again, you know, similarly with things like um, Umbrella and all those other complementing um, security products, it, it is a, it's almost a match made in heaven. So this is very operational. Everything we're talking here is operational. It's all day two. It's all, you know, you've got this. How do you make it easier to operate? How do you make it cheaper to operate? Or how do you make it better operations? How can you diagnose faults faster? Yeah. Now, another part of what we're talking about here is that you're talking about faster insights, particularly around event detection. Absolutely. One of the things that Thousand Eyes has done really well is collect a heck of a lot of data. And we've been able to present that back to our customers in a, in a meaningful and actionable way. But the challenge is as those vantage points get you know wider and wider and and you get more of a vast um, view across your infrastructure you know there are, there are times when you've got a lot of data you've got a lot of insights but sometimes you just need to be able to in a split second understand exactly what's going on and that's where we're looking at introducing the thousand eyes event detection our automated event detection which will help our customers i you know save them from having to do the manual work of having to identify them maybe they receive an alert from thousand eyes mm-hmm. and they go in and they want to validate it we want to take that away. And we also want to get them to that point of really bringing them that meantime to identification and hopefully meantime to remediation right down. Mm. You call it remediation. I call it, I call it innocence. It's not the network. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> it might be, but you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And and I think meantime to innocence is, is something we love to talk about. You know, again, I think with the event detection, it's, it's most likely going to highlight the network and to some degree, um, mm. and it's going to find those micro outages that you often don't see. And, and it's, so. it's so much more important now because today we do a lot of SD-WAN, we do things over broadband, we do things over Wi-Fi. The networks aren't, you know, where we were years ago was we were on guaranteed bandwidth, not very much of it. And, you know, the only thing that was probably going to go wrong was that the network was congested. Whereas now the internet is rarely, if ever, congested. But you don't know where the traffic's going. Is it long? Is it slow? Is there an outage in this state? Is it this telco in this state or that state that's out? It's still that problem of, is it the telco? Is it the home? Is it the Wi-Fi? Is it the DNS? What is it? And that's what you're looking for here is that event detection to say, oh, we're already, yeah, Thousand Eyes will pop up and say, yeah, there's a problem. It's limited to this state. There's a DNS outage, you know, maybe Azure's down in this particular zone and you can instantly start to know what's happening. I mean, you just have to look back at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of the broadband infrastructure just wasn't ready for this, you know, big influx of traffic, particularly during the day. And again, this is where the Thousand Eyes endpoint agents and, and enterprise agents really helped our customers truly understand where those problems were. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, we're seeing that more and more and more. And that's really where this event detection piece is really making a, a difference for our customers. 
So the last announcement uh, related to thousand hours to come out of Cisco Live uh, 2023 was something called AWS Network Path Enrichment. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, I mean, I think the the crux of this is we had a we had a situation uh, within our cloud ops team, and you know we've 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 got a big AWS estate as does as does the rest of Cisco, mm-hmm. and we had this issue, and we just couldn't really figure out what was going on. And really the the feedback we had was, you know, it was really hard to identify what this specific node was and what this specific node does. And we were like, well, we have a great partnership with, with AWS. So let's have a conversation with Amazon. Let's see what we can do. So what we've done is we've invested data from AWS and we have then overlaid that data uh, on our path visualized. So if a node is a, a peering node, or let's say a node is an EC2 node, or it's part of a I know, global accelerator or whatever it may be, we can give you that insight and we can give you that understanding as to what the performance of that is. Amazon will say global accelerator needs to be reacting in this specific way, or is it has this SLA or whatever it may be, and this is what they guarantee. And it's sometimes difficult to prove that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Thousand Eyes does is give you that proof point. It's that trusted proof point um, and a known entity. And we're experienced in providing that, that evidence. So we can provide you that evidence to say, hey, AWS, something's wrong. And that's what we had with AWS. We had an issue with, with, uh, with, uh, with one of our applications and the time to first byte wasn't where we, where we expected it to be. And it turned out that there was a misconfiguration um, that happened due to, a, due to some kind of um, maintenance or migration. Um, and that was actually causing us this slow um, time to first byte. And again, we wouldn't have been able to identify that very well without something like Thousand Eyes helping us along the way. Mm. With that path enrichment, we wouldn't have even need to do an IP address lookup or have to do some manual process. With the path enrichment there, we were able to identify, oh, actually, yeah, this is a global accelerator node and this is just not responding the way it should be. So let's have a conversation with AWS right now. Okay. I mean, again, it's that whole mean time to identification, speeding that up for everybody. But it's also knowing specifically about the infrastructure inside the clouds, which is proprietary and odd. It doesn't perform normally sometimes. What their version of normal in means your event, your alerts, are intelligently saying this is what's wrong. As we all know, a lot of these networks are now virtualized. The IP address changes, they'll move and they'll shake and they'll do lots of different things. So it's very difficult to track what's going on. So again, having that context will really, really help you understand exactly where that problem is, exactly what could be causing that issue. And then most importantly, you can have an educated conversation with someone like AWS and you know, being able to do that and being able to talk in the same language that they understand and being able to give them a proof point of what we call a snapshot within Thousand Eyes giving them a snapshot of the real problem, that is going to get you to remediation so much more quickly than you saying, well, we think we've got a problem. And then they're like, prove it. And to make sure I understand you're talking about, you're getting this data directly from AWS APIs, as opposed to having to seed my AWS infrastructure with a whole bunch of uh, visibility agents. Yeah, that's correct. So we're, we're using a mix of um, proprietary information as well as as uh, public APIs to, to pull that data okay. in. Then we're aggregating it and then we're enriching our path visualization with that data that we receive from AWS. My understanding of uh, a lot of the cloud providers infrastructures, it can be very opaque. Uh, and so this is a, a way to get more visibility into that uh, opacity. Absolutely. And I think, as I mentioned, there's a lot of a dynamic nature related to to a lot of these networks and and being able to get that context, being able to get that understanding. Um, it'll help your SRE teams, your ops teams, and it'll give them a lot more context as to what's going on. 
Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for with today's episode. Thanks so much to Thousand Eyes for sponsoring today's show. It helps us pack of wishes to be here. There's lots more information about Thousand Eyes on their website. Go to Thousand Eyes, just as it sounds, one word, dot com slash packet pushes and there's a landing page there where you can find more information about the announcements and also get in touch with Thousand Eyes if you want to be harassed and find out more about it. You can also subscribe to the Thousand Eyes blog unsurprisingly at thousandeyes.com slash blog where you can hear more about the announcements and track upcoming feature releases and remember that you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our blog and other podcasts in the network with just as much good information as you got today. You can follow us on all of the social medias on Packet Pushers at Twitter and you can also find us on LinkedIn. We have a whole new diverse range of social media choices there uh, as all the other social medias collapse. LinkedIn may end up being the last one standing and last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough.